0: As we continue to make our way through the book of Romans, I invite you to turn your Bibles and your attention with me to Romans chapter 12. We'll be reading there from the first two verses, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. This past week I was interviewed by a reporter from our local newspaper on a matter, and in the course of our conversation she went on to ask about how I preached Uh, The Bible? Did I jump from place to place in the Bible or was I one of those who preaches a whole book from beginning to end? And of course I told her that my practice was to preach consecutively through books of the Bible and and then it occurred to me that this Sunday's sermon makes the 49th uh, in this series of Romans so far and she thought that was particularly remarkable. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, there are plenty of preachers who by now would only be on the fifth chapter of Romans in 49 weeks. What I find remarkable is that we can be on chapter 12 of Romans and just now be getting down to Paul's application of the doctrines that he has thus far laid out before us, before his readers. We've had 11 solid Chapters of what? Eleven chapters of doctrine. Of truth simply laid out before Paul's readers, before us. Now, do you think doctrine was important to Paul? Do you think doctrine is important to God? Well, you bet it is. In fact, it is Paul's regular practice in his letters to write in the first part and develop doctrine first. Why? Because we cannot live, know how to live, until first we know what to believe. Behavior follows belief. Not the other way around. That's not true only for Christians, it's true for everyone who lives. What one does, how one acts, how one interacts with other people, people, including God, is based on what they first believe, the doctrine that they hold. All people, even those people who would deny this vehemently, hold to some doctrine, some set of beliefs, or another. Everybody, everybody does. Islamic terrorists behave the way they do, because, precisely because of their doctrine. Even atheists live the way they do because fundamentally they believe something, even if that something is that God does not exist. Liberal Christians behave the way they do because of their doctrine, and so do you, and so do I. Now, Paul takes 11 chapters of doctrine here, and he applies them to that place where the rubber meets the road, beginning here in chapter 12, although he certainly made applications along the way. What does all of this that we've heard now over 48 weeks in Romans have to do with our lives? What does it look like in our lives? We'll see that now, the Lord willing, and over the weeks to come, beginning this morning, right after prayer. Our Father in heaven, come and speak to us, we pray, by thy spirit. And help us to take all that now that you have taught to us, all that has thrilled our hearts with the Apostle Paul, so that we should praise and glorify you with the doxology at the end of chapter 11. Now to see that lived out and work out in our lives. So grant us grace, we pray, our Father, to obey another commandment that you gave through the Apostle Paul, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Years ago, Dr. Francis Schaeffer asked a question that has become well-known in Christian circles. He asked, how then shall we live Every word in that question is important. It becomes altogether another question if asked this way, how shall we live? And that question, put in that open-ended way, could yield, I suppose, a thousand different answers. But asked the way Francis Schaeffer asked it, how then shall we live it is a directed question, looking for a specific answer. That word, then, how then shall we live, implies that there is some standard by which that question must be answered. The answer is based on something. The question itself is based on something that came before. We might expand the question to say, in light of thus, this and thus, how then shall we live? Or if thus and this are true, then how shall we live? This is what Paul's doing in the passage before us this morning. Only he's not asking the question, he's giving us the answer. For 11 chapters now, Paul has been developing doctrine, particularly the doctrine of God's grace and of his mighty acts and mercies to his children, whom he is saving, even us. And the consideration of it all and Remember now what we call the book of Romans and have divided into chapters and then down into little verses was, as a matter of fact, for Paul, just a a flowing letter. I say, having written of the the terrible consequences of unbelieving disobedience to God on the one hand, but even more on the other, of God's riches in mercy and grace to his people, Paul doesn't ask, He, he tells us how then we should Live as a living sacrifice, he says in chapter and verse 1 a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, I want this morning to ask four questions of this text to help us all to understand better what is being required of us. Here, in Romans 12, and those four questions fall along these lines. First, motive. What is to motivate this life of living sacrifice to which we are called? Second, means. How shall we live this life? Third, medium. A visual artist uses canvas as his medium, the material on which he performs his task. A musician writes notes and puts them on paper. What is the medium for our obedience, our living sacrifice? And then, fourth, the mandate. What specifically is being commanded here, laid as a mandate upon us? So motive means medium and mandate. First, motive. In other words, long before we get to the mandate, to the commandment itself, First, we must know why. What is our motive for doing what God calls us to do? You might remember as a little child, as you were growing up in your home, depending on the nature of your childhood, that your motivation, your motive for obeying your parents was what? Well, oftentimes it was fear. Fear. And, and concern about punishment that you might invoke if you didn't obey. You were motivated at one time in your life, many of you, and most of us to well, all of us really to one extent or another, were motivated by some sort of fear, maybe some sort of desire for reward. Maybe you had parents who gave you rewards, gave you a sucker when you got back home for being a good boy or girl or, even paid you money if you got certain grades and did what you were supposed to do in school. Well, motive motive is shot through everything, absolutely everything that we do, always, always. We always have some motive or other for our behavior. Even as adults, we are often motivated by fear or maybe fear of embarrassment or, or fear of loss of some sort. We may be motivated by money. We are sometimes motivated by a desire to be recognized. We're sometimes motivated by love, sometimes by lust. For everything we do, there is a motive. That's most certainly true in the Christian life, especially. In fact, I will go so far as to say this. That when it comes to living a faithful life under God, motive is everything. That, of course, is a bit of hyperbole, but God who sees the heart is always weighing our motives, always looking to the heart. Two people may do the very same exact act, even... Even a good act, like giving food to a poor person in the street. Two people give food to a poor person along the way. And from the outside, it may appear to be exactly the same thing. Exactly the same act. For us who can only judge behavior from the outside. But God, God looks beyond the appearance and beyond the outside and looks upon the heart. He judges the heart. He sees our motives and he weighs them perfectly. That is why I say when it comes to the Christian life, motive is everything. There is another simpler reason why I say that motive is everything. I say that because without proper motivation, we will not do the proper action. Or even if we do the proper action, it will only be proper in the outward, shallow sense. There will be no satisfaction in doing what is right, no joy in the avoidance of what is wrong if the motive is untrue. That is why before we get to the mandate, the commandment, Long before we get to it, I want for us first to consider carefully, very carefully, the motive. There's an old line, something of in, an inside joke used between preachers. You've probably heard it. It goes like this. Guilt is a great motivator. And it is. It is a great motivator. Preachers, particularly preachers who are adept at this skill can use guilt to manipulate people into doing lots of things supporting this program or that program doing this or that keep people feeling guilty keep reminding them of their guilt before god and a person in the leader in leadership in the church or in the family can get their people to do all sorts of things for a while, Using both the objective guilt that we all have before God and the subjective feeling of guilt, they can get people to act. Some of you have told me and conveyed to me your own miserable experiences of growing up under such ministers and in such churches. Politicians in the civil realm, in civil government, and we see this now exacerbated In the time of candidacy, politicals in the civil realm often learn the power of guilt as a great motivator to get their constituents to support this program or that program, to do this or that. But notice here that it is not guilt that Paul uses as a motive for the mandate he lays upon the Christians at Rome and indeed upon us this morning. He does not say, by God's judgment, I tell you, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. He does not say, remembering how sinful and miserable you are, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. No, he says this, by God's mercies. Now, I cannot tell you, I am going to fail miserably right now to convey to you how important this is. Don't miss this. This is absolutely life-changing, revolutionary. Even many Christians who have been Christians for years and years come to this one thing, this fact, and it turns their lives around. Again, liberating them, even exhilarating them after having even known the Lord for a long time. The motivation for living the Christian life, for obeying God, for doing His commandments, for laying down your life as a sacrifice to God, Paul says, is not guilt, whether real or felt, or any other thing, than this, God's mercies. God's mercies, by which I'm convinced Paul means more broadly the love of God, the grace of God, the generosity of God to you, the blessings of God upon his children. In other words, the entire glorious package of God's astounding kindness to us. This is what is to motivate us. This excite us. Move us to obey God. And what, what a motive that is. I mentioned that old pastoral adage, guilt is a great motivator. Well, the standard response you should know is, yes, it is for a time. For a time. Guilt will motivate people to act. For a time. But it cannot will not sustain obedience to God. Guilt will motivate people for a time, but eventually it is seen for the bitter yoke and heavy that it is. Guilt as a motive cannot produce genuine obedience to God anyway. True obedience to God is not rendered from a heart that dreads Him. That hates him, that rolls about in the mire of guilt and ill will. Remember, God measures our obedience now not from the outside, but from the heart. And even if that were not true, none of us can for one moment really believe ourselves. I mean, really say that I'm obeying God if my obedience rises out of such cold, dull, Unhappy, miserable motives. Only one chief motive will sustain the kind of life that Paul describes in terms here of living sacrifice. That motive must be thankfulness, gratitude, praise. Praise for such mercies as God has and continues to lavish upon us, particularly in his son, Jesus Christ. It is the only motive, or rather, it is not the only motive that the scripture gives to us, but it is the chief one, and the one without which you cannot possibly expect to live a genuine, pleasing, truly fulfilling, and joyful Christian life. Here is J.I. Packer. Quote, the secular world never understands Christian motivation. Faced with the question of what makes Christians tick, unbelievers maintain that Christianity is practiced only out of self-serving purposes. They see Christians as fearing the consequences of not being Christians, religion as fire insurance, or feeling the need of help and support to achieve their goals, religion as a crutch or wishing to sustain social identity, religion as a badge of respectability. No doubt all these motivations can be found among the membership of churches. It would be futile to dispute that. But just as a horse brought into a house is not thereby made human, so a self-seeking motivation brought into the church is not thereby made Christian. Nor will holiness ever be the right name for religious routines thus motivated. From the plan of salvation, I learned that the true driving force in authentic Christian living is and ever must be not the hope of gain, but the heart of gratitude. Here's the point. And we could easily spend the entire morning making it. The motive is everything when it comes to the Christian life. And the best motive for any Christian life is the mercies of God that have been poured upon us all who are in Christ Jesus. Servile fear, guilt, shame may move you to do things for a while, but only the remembrance and the consideration of and then the thrill over and in the mercies of God to you, especially on the cross, but also long before that in your election, choosing you from eternity, past if we may even say such a thing, and your eternal salvation in the future can sustain you long term in the Christian life. Second, then we ask about means. How shall we make of ourselves living sacrifices to God? And the answer is the same again. God's mercies. God's mercies are not only the motive, they are also the means. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Only God's mercies, only by His grace, can we have what we need. Can any man or woman, boy or girl do this, become a living sacrifice to Him? Remember Jesus, even as He commands us to abide in Him. To remain as branches in the vine, he turns right around and says, without me, nothing. You can do nothing. Same here. It's only by God's mercies that we may be a living sacrifice to him. And watch what rich mercy it is. Paul has been considering those mercies, as we saw last time it sent him to singing the doxology and praising God. That he, from the foundation of the world, Christian, chose you. That specifically, by name, he decided you would be my daughter, you would be my son, for no reason in you whatsoever. Not because you'd done anything good or bad, not because there was anything that set you apart from the crowd, not one thing, nothing in you. But his mercy chooses you. And then, after you had with your father Adam spit in his face, he sent his son to the earth and ultimately to the cross where you spit in his face again. But he endured the shame and did not come off of that cross until your salvation was finished. One, but that's not all, for he promised another who would come, the Holy Spirit, and now he lives in you, sealing salvation to you and enabling you by his mercies. Remember, Jesus, without me, you can do nothing. It is as true today as it was the day he told his disciples those words. But you have him today. He lives in you by his spirit. He is always in you, always with you, working in you, strengthening you. And by the way, his strength, Christians, is not made perfect In your strength. His strength is made perfect in your weakness. Now, all of that is but a sampling, just a a smattering, a poor sampling at that from the poor lips of your pastor of the mercies of God. Words fail us to speak the matchless worth and power of the mercies of God that meet you every minute, that meet you when you wake up in the morning, that meet you at the table, that meet you all through the day, always and constantly and ever. And they only can suffice to empower you to live this life, a living sacrifice that the Lord has called you to be, not your strength, Christian, not your strength by a long shot, but by the mercies of God. Third, what is the medium? Where is this life painted, so to speak? What is the canvas, the, the material on which this life and of which this life is made? Well, Paul says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, that may not sound very surprising or very remarkable to you at all, uh, to your ears today. But it would have been to many in Paul's day, in which Greek forms of thought were so prevalent. Remember that at that time, when Paul writes this, there is a fundamental belief afoot that what matters is The soul, not the body. As long as the soul was kept pure, the body could engage in all manner of impurity and debauchery. In fact, it was widely believed at the time that the soul was good, the body basically evil, and the best thing that could happen to a person is for their soul to be released from their body. It was part of an entire system of thought we know by the name today, Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, alas, is making a big comeback. And I'm not talking just about the culture, I'm talking about the church, in the church. We have come, once again, in very subtle ways, and not so subtle, to think little of the body, and much of the soul, and it is having devastating results in the Christian church today. Hear this, God is not at all interested in mere soul obedience. He made you soul and body which means that Christian obedience involves soul and body as well. And that Christian obedience that does not involve the body is simply not Christian obedience. While it is true that the soul and body will be separated from each other for a time between our death and the Lord's coming again, if he should tarry, it is also just as true, gloriously true, that body and soul will be reunited. And we shall be raised, not only spiritually, but physically, from the grave. Our bodies are every bit as important to God as our souls. And he wants them just as much. Christians, in this day and age of body abuse, when bodies are viewed by people as fundamentally their own property to be abused, tattooed, pierced, modified poisoned with substances, indulged in appetite, even joined to prostitutes and serial partners at whim, we will do very well to give careful thought and attention to the fact, for fact it is, that this stuff, this, this flesh, this, this meat, so much of it, this gray matter here, this cartilage, these bones... They belong to God. They are His. And in fact, He died and shed His blood and had His flesh pierced to buy your flesh, your bodies. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, Paul writes. Maybe a bit morbid for me to, to share this with you, but several months ago, I, this came home to me as I stood waiting in an aisle in a bookstore here in town. Debbie was looking for something else, and I found myself in the uh, human anatomy section of the bookstore, and I pulled a book off the shelf, and as I opened it, started looking at the, uh, the pictures. And page after page were pictures, not sketches now, not illustrations, pictures, actual pictures of human body parts, actual cadavers. I won't go on to describe the pictures to you themselves, though I will say that I found that book entirely fascinating and even helpful in many ways. But about halfway through the book, it dawned on me that what I was looking at in these pictures were once living bodies that were subjected every day of their lives to the decisions of those people. What foods were ingested and introduced into those stomachs? What, what drinks how those bodies were kept, hygienically speaking, health-wise, and used in every function that the human body is capable of. Somehow viewing those lifeless human bodies brings home the thrust of Paul's point. A sacrifice is something that you give over to someone else. While we have life, brothers and sisters... Our bodies, our bodies are to be used to serve him, to glorify him. Whether that has to do with what we put in our mouths and makes its way down to our stomach and is digested and distributed and and used and burned and so on. Whether it means the way we keep our bodies, the uses to which we put our bodies, the clothing, We put on our bodies, or the display of our bodies, the keeping of our bodies in every way, all of these things, all of them, are part and parcel of how we offer them to God as living sacrifices. In every part, from from head to toe, your body is your medium. It is the, the thing, the physical thing that you have to offer to God, to present to Him. And since we are body and soul 24 hours a day of our lives, we will do well to think carefully about how to fulfill forth now the mandate. We have the motivation. It is the mercy of God. We have the means, the mercies of God again. We have the medium. It is our bodies. And we must have all of those first, which is why it's no mistake that I've kept you on hold all this morning to finally get around to the mandate. It is quite simply to offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. And exactly what that means, I think, comes fairly clear when first you've studied, as we have, the the motive and the means and the, the medium. Fundamentally, It means that in the obedience you render to God all throughout the day, you, with your bodies, glorify God. When you are in bed, you use your body to glorify God. When you are at the breakfast table, you use your body to glorify God. When you are at the amusement park, that you use your body to glorify God when you are at the workplace, that you offer your body a sacrifice to God when you're at the doctor's office, when you are walking through the mall, a walking, living sacrifice to God at school, in your home, in the car, in the pew, at church, in the worship of God, in his sanctuary, this, this body a living sacrifice to God. A sacrifice, fundamentally, Christians, you know this full well, is something that you offer to someone else. This, brothers and sisters, is what you are called constantly to do with your body, to give it always and in all things and at all times to him, to his service, to whom it belongs anyway. The very one who, by his mercies, motivates and enables you to do this very thing, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to him. Amen.